you're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Denim Audio Network. Hello and welcome to The Way Home Podcast. This is Dan Darling. I'm so glad you joined me today. We have a great guest in store for you. But before we get to that conversation, I just want to remind you of a few things. First, my book, The Characters of Creation, is part of the Moody character series that I've done, Characters of Christmas, Characters of Easter, is available. You can find it at your favorite bookstore, online, or in person. Also, if you'd like to sign up for my newsletter, One Little Word, you can go to danieldarling.com and sign up for that. We're coming to you from Texas Baptist College, and if you're interested, if you have a child interested in enrolling in Texas Baptist College to get a really good Christian worldview before they go out in the world and begin their career, we'd love for you to check it out, texasbaptistcollege.com. Okay, let's get to our interview with our next guest. He is my friend Derwin Gray. Derwin is pastor of a large church in South Carolina. He has pastored there for a long time. He was formerly a football player, played, I believe, for the Carolina Panthers, has a great story of of salvation and conversion. And uh, he's been pastoring Transformation Church for many years now, one of the truly multicultural, multi-ethnic churches around the country. He's also a great uh, speaker and writer, and he has a great book called How to Heal Our Racial Divide, What the Bible Says and the First Christians Knew About Racial Reconciliation. I know there's a lot of noise out there about the issue of race. I know a lot of people are tired of the conversation. There's tension back and forth, particularly among Christians. This is a really helpful book in that it, what I love what Derwin does is he really just goes back to the scriptures and says, here's what the scriptures say about race. Here's what the scripture says about God's heart for racial reconciliation from Old to New Testament. One of my favorite phrases that he says in this book is that God promised Abraham a multi-ethnic family, and that is being fulfilled in the church and the body of Christ. So you will like this conversation. Uh, Derwin is very candid about life and leadership and how to lead in this moment. So let's join our friend Derwin Gray. Glad to have back on the podcast, my friend Derwin Gray. Derwin, thanks for joining me today, man. It's always good to be with you, Daniel. I uh, appreciate your ministry and appreciate our thought-provoking time together. I wanted to have you back on the program to talk about your latest book, How to Heal Our Racial Divide, What the Bible Says, and the First Christians Knew About Racial Reconciliation. Uh, I really enjoyed this book, Derwin, and benefited from it greatly. First of all, I want to ask you, you know, writing a book like this, a lot of people are worn out by the conversation about racial reconciliation, people on all sides of it, because, you know, the last several years have been difficult. What motivated you to write this book now in this moment? What motivated me to write the book now and in this moment is the gospel of King Jesus. I have a theological conviction that the living God of the universe made a covenant with a man by the name of Abram and changed his name to Abraham, which means father of many. 
And he told Abraham, I'm going to give you a family made up of all the families of the earth. And through Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and the nation of Israel, one would come who would ratify and fulfill this covenant. And that one is none other than Jesus of Nazareth, very God of very God, the eternal son of God. And through his sinless life, his atoning substitutionary death on the cross, his resurrection and ascension, vindicating that he is the Messiah. And through the sending of the Holy Spirit, God fulfilled his promise through Jesus to have a family. And his family would be a family of every nation, tribe and tongue. And so the way we say it at Transformation Church, and the way, the way I've written it in the book is, Jesus not only forgives sins, but he creates a family with different colored skins. And as this family loves each other, the world will know that we are his students. By our unity, the world will know that the father sent the son. And so I wrote this book out of a theological, biblical conviction shaped by the good news of King Jesus. Um, it just happened to be in a time in history that over the last eight to 10 years, the bleeding wound that had a Band-Aid on it was reopened. And I want to be really, really clear. And I think this is super important. And by way of illustration, this past summer, my wife and I were in Greece on a missions trip learning about sex trafficking. And one of the things that the church planners told us in Greece was this is that the Greeks aren't racist. They just think they're better than everybody else. And then we learned that the Albanians don't like the Greeks and every other ethnic group. So ethnic tension, bigotry and supremacy and prejudice is not intrinsic to the United States of America. There's a dark, demonic issue that has plagued humanity since Adam and Eve blew things up in the Garden of Eden. And so ethnic reconciliation to the gospel has to be intrinsic first to our worship and secondly to our spiritual formation and discipleship. And to circle back to something that you said, Dan, which is really, really important. You said that people are tired of this conversation and worn out. Just imagine how people of color feel. Mm. Not only are we tired of the conversation, but people like me believe there's a gospel mandate that God's church of all ethnicities should be leading the way in what Paul says in Ephesians 2.16, that through his flesh, through his body on the cross, he reconciled the two groups, Jew and Gentile, and made them one, a new humanity. And so for me, this is deeply biblical, theological, shaped by the gospel, and has practical implications, not only for our discipleship, but for our bearing witness to the world that Jesus is who he claims to be. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I really appreciated about the book is, unlike a lot of books on the topic, you really center this conversation about race, and, and specifically racial reconciliation, in the story of, of salvation in salvation history, you kind of walk people through the scriptures and sort of give a, a theological history, if you will, of racial reconciliation. And why I think that's so important, Erwin, is, you know, I think a lot of people really desire recon racial reconciliation as maybe something that would be nice if we could get it at some point. 
rather than seeing it as God's heart and desire for the nations and particularly for his people. Why was it so important for you to just locate it in salvation history in, in the scriptures like this when you're putting your book together? Yeah, Dan, it, it, it was it was important to me because I don't know any other way how to locate ethnic reconciliation other than Christocentrically, that I believe that Christ is a sum total of all things that are good and that Jew and Gentile is in Christ and becomes this new humanity. And so I didn't realize that there was any other option. And some of my frustration and impatience is what I see is people will use sociological terms, sociological means. I'm not against so uh, psychology. I'm I'm not against those things. So I'll see that on the progressive left and it's void of Christ. But then on the conservative right, I'll see this vertical substitutionary atonement only salvation that Jesus died for my sins and he justified me. I'm good with him. But for the apostle Paul, I believe that the doctrine of justification was not only vertical that we're declared righteous in God, but Jew and Gentile horizontally are equally declared righteous in God. Therefore, There can be no supremacy, but the supremacy of Christ, because regardless of your ethnicity, status, social class, we approach Jesus clothed in the same garments of his righteousness. And if we're the body of Christ, how can I look down on my own self? If we're the family of Christ, how can I look down on my brothers and sisters? If we're the bride of Christ, how can I look down on my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And so for me, this issue is incredibly gospel centered and theological. And to be frank, I think people have lost faith in the gospel, Mm. whether on the conservative right or the progressive left, is they actually don't believe that as Ephesians says, the body of Christ literally literally reconcile Jews and Gentiles. And so what I want to propose is it's very important for us. And this is what I've been discipling my congregation through, Dan, is this. I asked them this question. How would you live your faith if the Republican Party and Democratic Party did not exist? How would you live your faith? Because... For the overwhelming majority of Christian history, that's the way most Christians have lived their faith. And that's the way the majority of Christians throughout the world live their faith. So I'm really having to disciple my people through partisan politics. This is what I tell our folks. Listen, why you vote is more important to me than who you vote for. There are godly people who voted for Donald Trump because they had good reasons to. There are godly people who voted Democratic, who are not pro-abortion, who are not pro-same-sex marriage, who are not pro-transgender. They have legitimate reasons. My goal as a pastor is to inform them of the gospel, to shape how they engage, but to not view the world through the eyes of an elephant or through the eyes of a donkey, 
but through the eyes of the lamb. And so even now, Dan, I had no idea what CRT was until I started hearing Southern Baptists talk about CRT. I mean, I literally have a doctorate in New Testament in context with a specific emphasis on first century, second temple Jewish understanding of racial reconciliation through the gospel. Like I'm a, I'm a Pauline guy, this, this, this Jew of a Jew reached Gentiles. Right. And I'm like, what is this CRT stuff? So I began to, to study it. I'm going, what's being leveled and criticized isn't CRT. Right. But then you go to the progressive left and there's no gospel. There's, there's no Jesus. So what I'm trying to do is to bring God's people back together to say, let's look at Jesus and let's follow him. There's a reason why on one side of the Sea of Galilee, he feeds 5,000. The other side of the Sea of Galilee, he feeds 4,000. One side is Jew, one side is, one side is Gentile. Mm. And with Matthew 8, 11, that's a foretaste of the banquet of Abraham's table. But here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. And, and, and I think it comes through loud and clear in the book. Paul writes in Philippians 2, 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others better than yourself. Verse 4, look not only for your own interest, but for the interest of others, for you have the mind of Christ. He goes into the kenosis of being a servant. The only way we can love each other across ethnic lines in this partisan world is to serve each other the way Christ served us. And so that's what I'm trying to get people back to. When they read the book, they're going to love Jesus more. Their understanding of scripture is going to be expanded. But then they're going to have this sense of, wait, this isn't optional. This is a part of God's heartbeat. I love uh, at one point in the book, you say this, God has always promised a multicolored, multi-ethnic family to Abraham. And that family was given to him in Jesus Christ. Jesus kept his father's promise to Abraham through his life, death, and resurrection, and through his victory over sin, death, and the powers of darkness. You are a product of the promise-keeping God, and so are your ethnically diverse siblings. Love and unity across ethnic lines were secured at the cross of Christ. I just love the way that you put that and really urge people to this. You know, when we think about racial reconciliation, you know, we're thinking about it not only in terms of, of, of biblical terms as you laid out, but we're, you know, in our current context here in the United States, we're not doing this in a vacuum. We're doing it, you know, with the backdrop, backdrop of history, uh, both very recent and going back where the history that features Jim Crow, that features slavery, that features racism. So there's a built-in history on all sides here how do we as God's people model this biblical racial reconciliation given the context we're in and given how fraught the conversation is? Yeah. I think the way we model it first and foremost is that we have to be intoxicated with Jesus. We have to be tethered to him through the power of the spirit. And what does it actually mean to love my neighbor as I love myself? Uh, loving your neighbors, you love yourself is not sentimental. It's sacrificial. It's cruciform. It's bloody. It it looks like the cross. It, it looks like the good Samaritan. So that's number one. It's a it's it's a heart posture. But then number two is we have to really learn how 
to not have our identity in past events of American history. So let me let me preface this. There's no country on the planet that I would rather live in than the United States of America. Mm. When I travel overseas and I come back home to the United States of America and the passport, the customs guy says, welcome home. Man, I feel like singing that one song. I'm proud to be in America. I mean, <laughs> I love my country. I do. I'm grateful in God's sovereignty. I was born at this time in history. But like any country on the face of the earth, there are dark, dark atrocities. Mm. And if we are not acknowledgeable of how we got to the present, we're doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past that got us here. So to my white brothers and sisters that are listening, when people of color bring up the past, like slavery and Jim Crow and those things, it's not to make you feel guilty. Besides, it shouldn't make you feel guilty because one, your identity's in Jesus, not America. Two, you are not alive to do those things. Now, it's important to acknowledge that that helps you get to where you are today. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging that. So this isn't about guilt. This is about looking at the past to say this ain't going to happen again. Like, like, Dan, if I told you that one day you would see a Confederate flag in the chambers of the U.S. Capitol, the seat of democracy, what 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 would you have said? You, you would say that's not possible because the Confederate flag stands for a four year old movement that didn't want to be a part of America, that wanted to keep people made in the image of God enslaved. Who would have ever thought that you would have seen in Charlottesville neo-Nazis marching? Like who? Who would have ever thought those things? And of course, there's things on the left from Antifa, and I'm not dismissing that. I typically hold people on the right to a higher standard because many claim to follow the Jesus that I follow. And so who would have thought? And, it, and it's almost like some of the things of the past are being repeated in the present because we haven't dealt with them. Now, on the flip side, I think we have to give a more robust biblical presentation of dealing with things in the past. Because a lot of times it is shaming, it is guilt inducing, and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Together as brothers and sisters in Christ, we should be able to look back and say, you know what, what happened to Native Americans was wrong. What happened to people of African descent was wrong. Segregation was wrong. Forms of policing that are unjust are wrong. As believers, we should look back and say, on our watch, we want to bring the kingdom of God to bear in every aspect of society, from in the womb all the way to the tomb, hmm. from the borders all the way to the White House, to the outhouse, to every, every square inch belongs to our king, and we need a more holistic understanding of what the gospel means. Mm, that's, really, that's really good. Now, let me ask you this. If you're, and you have a chance to talk to a lot of pastors, 
you know, in the course of your speaking and writing and, and training, you have conferences and you bring folks in, you know, one of the things, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the things I've seen, you know, the national conversation is discouraging sometimes and sometimes seems, seems fruitless, but where I sometimes see the most work being done on this is at the local level where, you know, churches are working together outside of the media spotlight trying to to embody what you're talking about in terms of racial reconciliation. So what do you tell pastor? If you're t- talking to a pastor of a church, he's trying to embody this and, you know, trying to teach this in his congregation, unity and racial reconciliation. What is it? Some advice you give. And I guess the second part of that is as you go around the country, what gives you hope? Yeah. So the first thing that I would say, and I've been having this conversation for 12 years now, is let's just use the example of a predominantly white church. What I say to the pastor is, please don't start out with a sermon series on why racism is this or that. What I want you to do, grab my book, get your elders, your deacons, read it together, discuss it, then get the rest of your staff, discuss it, Take the book, use it as a sermon series and methodically and slowly begin to teach your people. Think three to five years, not three to five months. A lot of my white pastor friends blew up their congregations because many of them, after George Floyd, immediately went into anti-racism. And a lot of what they were presenting was a lot of sociology and not biblical exegesis. So our church is probably 55 to 58% white. And that's a diversity of white, East Coast, South Carolina, rich, poor, middle class, whatever. What I've learned, particularly for conservative white folks, is I have to be a world-class exegete of scripture. That when I can show people from the Bible, they go, okay, I can get behind that. Um, I don't I don't use buzzwords like white privilege or woke or any of those things. What I want to do is I want people to encounter Jesus in the text. And when they encounter Jesus in the text, then I can take an ancient truth and apply it today. Like, oh, my gosh, the Good Samaritan. Are you kidding I mean, that 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 would be unheard of for a Jew in the first century to say a Samaritan was good. There was a 700 year ethnic feud that was going on. Right. And, and so that's what I would say is think long term. And this isn't an event. Ethnic reconciliation to the gospel is not a hobby. It's a holy habit. It's a way of being in the world. Okay, and it's all over the scripture. And then secondly, what what gives me hope, Dan, is this is I know early on a Sunday morning, 2000 years ago, the king walked up out of that tomb and he is exalted at the right hand of his father and the spirit has been sent. And he told Peter, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Jesus and his exalted status and his presence among his people gives me hope. What gives me hope also is Gen Z and younger millennials. Uh, Gen Z and younger millennials are not going to put up with a bifurcated faith. 
Um, they they want a Jesus who feeds empty souls and empty bellies. They want a Jesus who cares about life in the womb and life at the border. They want a Jesus that says, you know what? This person is struggling with same-sex attraction, but I'm going to love them. I'm going to be present with them. I'm going to speak grace and truth and to walk with them all the way. They want a Jesus that's prophetic against Republicans and Democrats, when Republicans do good, high five. When Democrats do good, high five. When Republicans do bad, call them out, right? Is we want to embody the kingdom. So I believe the future leaders of the church aren't even saved yet. So I'm hopeful that God is doing a new thing. But but also, Dan, I do sense that there are major institutions religiously in America that the foundation of sand is beginning to crumble. And I think some of them need to crumble so something new can be built up. Mm. Mm. That's really good. I guess a couple more questions and we'll be, be done. Really excellent stuff. But I want to encourage folks to get this great book by Derwin Gray and maybe get it with your church and, and talk with folks very grounded in scripture, how to heal our racial divide. You know, I, I sometimes Derwin, I talk to people that, and I think this is kind of the extreme and these are probably people who are mostly online and not in actual communities, but there seems like a, there are some voices that are just uninterested in, you know, when you say healing our racial divide or, or reconciliation, I feel like there's people on both sides saying, you know, why? Like, you know, let, you know, you know, why is this even important? I think you laid out from scripture why it's not just a nice thing that w- would happen, but it's something that's sort of a that's a mandate from scripture. But how do you answer someone who says, why do why do we need to why do we need to even do work on this? Why does this even need to to be important? Yeah, you know, so what I would say, Dan, is it, 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 it takes a great deal of discernment to see if the person profits from division. Mm. Division makes people very, very rich. Mm. Division and anger and outrage makes people rich. Fear of the other makes people rich. And so there's a lot of people who don't want unity because they wouldn't have a business. They wouldn't have a ministry. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, I think the devil does far more damage working through people who say they're Christians than people who are not. And so I think there are strategic demonic dark forces that have overruled people's common sense and their consciousnesses are are seared. Um, there has been people that I've respected for 15, 20 years that I don't even recognize them anymore, Dan. Like, I don't even recognize these people anymore. I just have never seen such a flip that I'm going, yeah. who in the world is this person? Yeah, I, I have the same reaction. You know, I, I feel like in the last five to six years, I've seen friends radicalize either left or right. And I'm and I'm just saying, I don't know what happened to these people, which is why I admire folks who have been able to sort of keep their equilibrium over the last several years. People that churches that really want to pursue 
uh, multi-ethnic unity. You know, your, your church is, is a multi-ethnic church. It's a, it's, it's a great example of what you're talking about. But this is kind of complicated, difficult work, too. I, I mm-hmm. read in Isaac Adams' book where he talked about, you know, sometimes in your context, trying to become a more multi-ethnic church is more difficult because of a number of factors. Community may be monolithic in one sense, or you've got traditions where folks have worshipped together in their communities for a long time. So it's difficult work to, to get our churches more less monolithic and more multi-ethnic. What advice do you have to pastors who are who are who have that as a goal, but it's obviously difficult in the short term to, to um, briefly? To I would say number churches. one and, and number two, um, great commandment, great commission. The great commandment nor the great commission gives me the right to build the kind of church that Derwin Gray wants. Uh, we 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 are a church. Jesus's church is shaped by love, great commandment. And great commission, go make disciples of all peoples, mm. all ethnos. So as a result of that, whatever my community looks like, then I need to intentionally and be strategic about creating ministry methodologies to reach that community. That's number one. Number two is whatever you want your congregation to look like, your leadership team must look like that. Your pastors, your elders, your deacons, mm-hmm. so goes the leadership, so goes the congregation. Because people know if you're serious about multi-ethnic church by who is wielding influence and who's leading, who's preaching, who's teaching, who's singing, who's serving. And then thirdly, which is most importantly, right? This is this is this is not an option. This isn't a if I want to do this, like think, think about how easy it would have been for the Apostle Paul to say, you know what? I'm going to make congregations for Jews only. But then within the Jews for the priestly order, because their kids can only marry other priestly order. And so you almost have a caste within the Jews. And then also the Greeks were obsessed with status. And so. Paul could have made a lot of homogeneous churches, but he didn't. It's it's a beautiful mess that he makes this mosaic. It takes work. It takes study. But also this needs to be taught in seminaries. We mission is intrinsic to what it means to be the church. So I'm a pastor. But I'm mission shaped. I'm shaped by the mission. So my methodologies and models has to be to engage the diverse people. Who am I? Who am I to go? You know what, Lord? I don't want to learn something new because I don't want to reach people in my area who are Southeast Asian or who are Indian Asian. I, I, I don't I don't want to reach them. I don't have the right to do that. And then secondly, I do still think there needs to be a first generation language type church, but there needs to be a close connection because the second gen is very much Americanized and that is our context. So you don't have to leave your color and your culture at the door. Bring who all that you are. And it's like a great big salad bowl where we mix together and the salad dressing is the grace of God that brings out the flavor in all of us. Mm. I love that. One final question. Could you just give a short word to uh, pastors and church leaders who are listening, you know, who've been leading through 
you know, the last few years have been difficult to lead who might be a little discouraged or weary. Could you give them a word of encouragement uh, before we are finished? Yeah. Uh, Times have been incredibly tough in so many ways. What I want to say to my brothers and sisters that lead is this. King Jesus has not forgotten you. He's not left you alone. What he calls you to, he's going to see you through. And the greatest ministry that you can have is not how many people are in seats or how many buildings you have or your budgets. Your greatest ministry is how much you allow Christ to love you. And the overflow of that is going to affect your marriage, your parenting and your staff. The greatest battle that you have is not thinking something is better than Jesus. Jesus is the best of the Mm -hmm. best. Mm, that's really good. Well, thank you, Derwin Gray. And I want to encourage everyone to get this book. We'll have links to it in our show notes, How to Heal Our Racial Divide, What the Bible Says, and the First Christians Knew About Racial Reconciliation, available from Tyndale. Derwin, thank you so much for your leadership and uh, for spending some time with us. Thank you, brother. Always good to chat. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Way Home Podcast with Daniel Darling. For more information, you can visit DanielDarling.com. If you do like this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. We also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast. You can follow me at at Dan Darling on Twitter or go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Daniel M. Darling. Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. Podcast.